G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Realfaith.org.au I knew what I was going to do and I walked up to my bedroom. I'm arguing with God and I'm saying to God, well, why shouldn't I do this? After all, you don't love me. You don't care for me. And I saw my Bible on the end of my bed and I pushed it off the end of the bed. It fell open to Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And I knew that God was saying, this is how much I love you. Welcome to Real Faith, conversations about the impact faith has on our lives and the challenges we go through, helping us today and giving us hope for tomorrow. That's real people, real life and real faith. When Elizabeth Kendall was 30 years old, she found herself divorced with four small children, the exact opposite of how she thought her life would be and she was left wondering if there was any way that God could still use her. However, God is a redeeming God, and he has redeemed her life and is now using her compassion for persecuted Christians in a remarkable way. We'll find out her story today. Elizabeth Kendall, welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric, and thank you for having me. Glad to have you with us. And yes, there was a point in your life that you were so disappointed, so shattered, that you pretty much thought there was no hope. Yeah, even worse than that, I thought there was... uh no future in my life, and uh, I became so low, I was actually suicidal at one point. I was actually planning to kill myself, so wow. yeah, I was pretty low. Okay, well, we're going to get to that point, that low point in your life, but first we want to back up and find out your background. Where were you born and raised? Well, I was born and raised in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents were Christians. Uh, my mother uh, became a really strong, committed Christian when I was just a young child, and my father was a very faithful man and very faithful uh, churchgoer. So I was raised in a Christian home, but my real encounter with the Lord probably took place when I was about 17. So I, I'd grown up in this Christian home. I'd done the teenage rebellion thing and gave mm-hmm. my parents a hard time. But then at the age of 17, my, it was Easter, and my mother had the television on over Easter, and they were showing the Jesus film. Mm-hmm. And I sort of, you know, I was not very interested at this point in my life, but I just got captivated with it and I was watching it and I watched Jesus deliver the Sermon on the Mount and I was captivated and I sat down and I watched the whole Jesus film that Easter. And I went to bed that night and I was thinking, you know, I should read that. And so I I got my Bible out and I thought, I'll read 10 verses tonight and 10 verses tomorrow night, you know. And I started reading and I just couldn't get out of it. And I, I knew at that moment that I, I was not a follower of Jesus, that I was probably not born again, that I was living a rebellious life and that I needed to repent. And I had really, really deep conviction of sin. And, uh, I can remember getting out of my bed and getting down on my knees and just praying 
that God would could forgive me and could uh, fill me with his spirit and, and make me his. And it was a real turning point in my life and um, a dramatic change in my life. And I became a reader. I'd never been a reader before, mm-hmm. but I was devouring the scriptures, uh, devouring good Christian literature, and it was a real turnaround mm-hmm. in my life at that point. So I was 17. That was year 12 at school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you grew up with Christian parents modeling for you what mm-hmm. a Christian marriage should be like? Uh, absolutely, yes. My f- father was a faithful man, uh, and my mother was a particularly uh, godly woman, and we had a very happy home, a very ordinary home. You know, I sort mm-hmm. of, I th- look back at it with such affection. It was so incredibly ordinary, but that is what made it so incredibly mm-hmm. comfortable and beautiful. We had a lovely little suburban home, and we had a lovely garden that my parents were so proud of, mm-hmm. and you know, we went on holidays to the beach like you did in the <laughs> in Australia and in those days, and it was just safe and secure and comfortable and very pleasant. And uh, I aspired to have uh, a wonderful family life myself. That was probably my biggest mm-hmm. aim in life. So now that you were a sincere Christian and going into your young adult years, that was your desire then, a marriage similar to your parents? Absolutely. That mm-hmm. was probably my, well, yeah, very similar, I would say, but I really wanted to be involved in Christian ministry. Mm-hmm. So I probably, um, I was looking for opportunities to be an, a really active Christian. So you were on fire. I was absolutely on fire. Um I did a music degree. There wasn't, I have to say, back in the 19, late 1970s, there wasn't a lot that a woman could do in terms of Christian ministry. It mm. was actually fairly difficult. Uh, some theological colleges didn't even let women in, you know, wow. <laughs> and you could go, you could train to be a foreign missionary and go and do Christian missionary work somewhere else. But there wasn't really a lot of opportunity for women, really, I would say. So I did a music degree. And uh, I have a Bachelor of uh, Music Education mm-hmm. and play flute and a bit of clarinet and saxophone as well. Oh, wow. So that, that's what I did. But it was during my um, my last year of my music degree that I met a Christian man who was um, doing a theological college degree, and he was going into ministry, and I thought he was wonderful, and it all we got together. And as far as I could see, God was unfolding this wonderful thing mm-hmm. for me. And living I, the dream. Living the dream. I was going to, it was, we were going to be this ministry team and um, it was going to be wonderful. I had such high hopes. I, I was going to be the best mother in the world. I was going to be the best <laughs> wife in the world. The home would be open for people. And um, so, yeah, I had really mm. great dreams of a, what I think were godly. I was anticipating a really wonderful, godly family life. Yeah. But then... We ended up separated, and seven years later, four children later, separated, and that was shattering. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely shattering. I, mm-hmm. I can hardly begin to even describe it. Divorce is shattering. Yeah. Did you feel like a failure? Oh, absolutely felt like a failure. I felt like this was the end of everything, uh, and that's why mm-hmm. I really ended up I ended up suicidal. I thought Take that, us to that lowest point. Yeah. Well, I, I got to the point where I felt that maybe the best thing was for me to take myself out of the picture. And um, I was in despair. I thought there was no hope for me and that the best solution for my children, who were all preschoolers, was if I took myself out of the picture. Mm. 
And I can remember the, the day. The devil had oh. such a grip on your mind at that point. Oh, absolutely. I could feel the spiritual warfare. Mm. I could feel it. I can still remember how I felt it. Mm-hmm. Um, like the atmosphere was thick. You could cut it with a knife mm-hmm. and you could sense the conflict going on. And I can remember walking up to my bedroom. I'd already decided how I was going to do this. Wow. And, so you had um, already visualized. Yeah, I mm-hmm. knew what I was going to do. And I walked up to my bedroom. I'm arguing with God and I'm saying to God, well, why shouldn't I do this? Why shouldn't I? Um, after all, you don't, you don't love me. Mm-hmm. You don't care for me. And I saw my Bible on the end of my bed and I pushed it off the end of the bed and I, it fell open on the floor to Isaiah 53. And mm. I looked down and there it was. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He was despised. We esteemed him not. He took our affirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. And I looked at it and I knew that God was saying, this is how much I love you. Mm. <laughs> this is how much I love you. I went to the cross for you. And um, it's like I was yelling at God and he just so graciously spoke straight back to me with mm. his word. And it turned my whole life around at that point. I realized that that I didn't have to view God this way. And I think so often as Christians, we think, well, hey, if we are right with God, then everything should be right in our worlds. Exactly. But we forget the verse where Jesus says, there will be troubles. Exactly. And we live in a sinful, fallen world, and mm-hmm. we're sinful, fallen people, and we're fallible, mm-hmm. and we make mistakes, and, and uh, you know. So that was a tough, it was tough lesson to learn. Right. Yeah. That life isn't a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. But, you know, it showed me that. I can come to God because he loves me. Mm-hmm. Uh, he loves me. In spite of my failings, in spite of everything, I, yeah, I can come to God because he loves me. He loved me enough to go to the cross for me. So it gave me a confidence to come back to him in prayer in a way that I'd been struggling for some time. I had a friend, actually, who said to me once, I bet you're angry with God. And I said, no, I'm not angry. I'm just really hurt and really confused. And she said, I bet you're so angry with God, you're no longer on speaking terms. And bang, it just hit me. I thought, maybe I am. Hmm. That's exactly right. And um, so at this point, I feel like God has assured me of his love and I can start speaking to him confident that he is hearing me, that he cares about me. And um, yeah, things changed very quickly in my life at that point. And, you know, that's just a whole different story. But God redeemed my situation. And that, to me, has been the greatest thing I've experienced, I think, in my life. Our guest today is Elizabeth Kendall sharing her story. And as we've been hearing, there was one point in her life when she had all but given up hope. But then God stepped in and is now using her compassion for persecuted Christians in a remarkable way. We'll find out all about that when we return right here on Real Faith. 
The Word for Today is Australia's most widely read daily devotional, designed to give you practical teaching to keep you focused on your relationship with Jesus. Read it online or subscribe to the free printed edition at thewordfortoday.com.au. You're listening to Real Faith, conversations with real people about how God works in their lives. If you want to know more about integrating faith into your life, our website is realfaith.org.au. That's realfaith.org.au. Just go to the website and you'll find helpful articles about the impact faith can have on your life. And you can listen to past programs about the impact faith has had on others. Once again, that's realfaith.org.au. Welcome back. I'm Eric Skadabo, and our guest today is international religious liberty advocate Elizabeth Kendall, sharing her remarkable story. Before the break, we heard how at one point in her life she had all but given up hope. She had thought that she was a failure. There was no way that God could use her. Now we're going to hear the remarkable way that she is helping persecuted Christians throughout the world. So anyway, I'm at that point, I'm single again. I'm divorced with four preschoolers at the age of 30. And I'm wondering, what on earth can God do with me now? You know, I, my whole... Surely you had been disqualified. Is that exactly. what you're thinking? Well, with? I'm thinking disqualified. I'm thinking I have no money. I have no time. Hmm. I, I can't... Just getting by is a chore, exactly. it sounds Exactly. Like. I mean, how do you study? How do you go to theological college mm-hmm. now when yeah. you've got four children and you're just struggling to put food on the table? And as you said, I was feeling disqualified like a failure and just that it was over. What was God going to do with me now? But I made that the focus of my prayer and um, I, I just prayed constantly, God, show me what I can do. Show me how you might use me mm-hmm. and guide me where you want me to go. And um, I would have prayed that for quite a long time. I think people often think, I'll pray that prayer and tomorrow morning I'll know what God wants me to do. <laughs> I, it doesn't really work out that way. I would say I was married for seven years. I learned a lot then. And then it was seven years after that marriage broke down that God called me into ministry. And uh, so that was like a 14 years mm. of preparation for mm. what God had for me then. So, But I prayed for years that God would show me what he wanted me to do. And then one day I was just I was uh, watching the news, I think, while I was um, doing the dishes. And I saw this little clip on the news, on SBS News, a little sound bite that said that the, the um, Australian Coptic Association, so the Copts are the indigenous people of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Right? Copt is the Arab word for Egyptian. So mm-hmm. the Copts are the original peoples. They're the descendants of the pharaohs. And they ha- are greatly persecuted because they were, became Christians, you see, in mm-hmm. the in the early church era. Uh, from the witness, uh, as tradition has it, of the um, Mark the Evangelist. So they're the Christian indigenous people of Egypt, and a terrible persecution had just been unleashed on them in Upper Egypt. But that wasn't on the news. The only thing that was really on the news was that the Coptic Association in Sydney had marched uh, in a silent protest to protest the persecution because over a 1,000 Christians in this village of al Koshe had been rounded up and were uh, being uh, tortured and abused by Egyptian police. And I thought to myself, that sounds absolutely, it's almost unbelievable. Mm. <laughs> like a thousand 
cops just rounded up under emergency laws. And they're innocent. Exactly. Completely and I'm innocent. thinking I'm thinking, what on earth is this all about? Mm-hmm. So it, and I it I tried to find out. It actually took a lot of effort for me to find out. So this is nineteen ninety eight. But God had got me on a hook, you see. Mm-hmm. He'd thrown the line out, he'd got me hooked and he was <laughs> wheeling me in. Yeah. And um I couldn't I couldn't let it go. And I finally got in contact with the Coptic Association in Washington in America. Mm-hmm. And they could see, uh, by God's grace, uh, they could see that this was really important to me. And uh, they sent me out information that showed that there'd been a murder in the village of Al-Koshay, a murder committed by a little uh, Muslim gang of criminals, and they'd kidnapped two boys, they'd taken them away, they'd tortured them, murdered them, brought them back in the boot of the car and dumped their bodies Mm. in the village. And this had been witnessed by a whole lot of people, including the priest of the village. And the Egyptian security forces refused to act on it because a number of members of the Muslim gang were the sons of police chiefs hmm. and things like that. So they were in a difficult situation. Yeah, so they used their emergency laws to gather up all the Christians so they could frame a Christian for the crime, mm. which they eventually did by torturing this man's children in wow. front of him. Five, father of five, they tortured him, and uh, he confessed when it went to trial. All the evidence was there that he wasn't even in the village because mm. he was in the army and he, wasn't, he was posted elsewhere. But he went, to, he went to prison for this crime. And I remember thinking, this is incredible. And I thought, if if the no, this South, is a grave injustice. Yes, and I thought, if if the if if the Egyptian police had arrested a thousand political opposition members, if they'd arrested a thousand journalists, mm-hmm. everyone would be on top of it. It yeah, would be yeah. big news. The uh, human rights groups would be all over it. But there were a thousand poor, really poor, mm-hmm. indigenous Egyptian Christians, and it's like. And unless they nobody, were protesting in Sydney, nobody would have no, even heard exactly. of it. Exactly. And it, that wasn't even the main the main subject matter of that little soundbite on SBS. The main subject was that the streets of Sydney were blocked for a couple of hours. Not you even know, the, uh, about the injustice yeah, that no, had No, that was just like, like a, a side issue. Wow. I was, wow. I was sort of so mortified. And I can remember looking out the kitchen window one day, washing the dishes again, and thinking... A lot of, a lot of washing the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> And I remember thinking, you know, it's the only time you get peace when you're a mother of four. <laughs> dishes time. Yeah. Oh, peace. Yeah. Anyway, I was washing the dishes and thinking, how do Christians pray for their brothers and sisters mm. undergoing this incredible life of hardship if they have no idea what is happening to them? Mm-hmm. Because the media doesn't report Somebody should it. probably tell them about it. That's exactly what I thought. And mm-hmm. I knew that God had called me in that moment that that was his calling on my life for the rest of my life. So I knew wow. it. It was a strong sense of calling, and I had to accept it, and oh. I did. <laughs> wow. And then yeah. what happened from that point? Well, then it was a roller coaster ride, mm-hmm. really. It was an absolute roller coaster. So I just started, I started writing. Mm-hmm. And hoping to uh, get the information off, so I had inform. I was getting my sources together mm-hmm. for sources of information. I was widening the net and bringing in more information. Writing. Uh, Did you wh- have any idea how this was all going to play out? No, you no just idea. wanted to just started. get the information out about yep. persecution. Yeah, just started. Mm-hmm. Just started and thought, well, 
I don't even know that I thought. <laughs> it really was like a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. I got in and it went. And um, uh, at one stage, I was getting great information from the World Evangelical Alliance. I really liked the main list that they had. And um, I got involved with World Evangelical Alliance mm-hmm. just at a time when their general secretary of the Religious Liberty Commission had been praying. He'd made it a matter for prayer. He said, we need a prayer ministry. Hmm. So he'd started praying daily that God would provide them with someone to do a prayer ministry for them. And he specifically asked for a divorced mother of four. (laughs) (laughs) I can assure you he didn't. But the the amazing thing is that this really godly man, who's a a lawyer and a parliamentarian Hmm. in the UK, Yeah. He's a deeply spiritual man who understands the concepts of gifts and calling. Mm-hmm. I mean, not everyone does. There's a lot of Christians who say, well, unless you've got a, you know, a master's in international Yeah, yeah, so pod, many degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then we're not interested so in talking yeah. to you. But he was praying and he expected God to answer his prayer at some point. And then I come along and I say, give me a job to do. And he could see your writing yes, and yeah, how you've been That's right. I've been writing for out. a couple of years mm-hmm. at that point. And he said, um, okay, uh, this is what, what we're going to do. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so there was, uh, there was him in the UK. There was another gentleman in Australia who mm-hmm. was with the World Evangelical Alliance Religious Liberty Commission, uh, Ron Clough. And they said, right, you can do we, – we want a prayer ministry. Can you write the prayer bulletin for us? And that started uh, in uh, July of 1999. Mm-hmm. So I've now written 1,000, more than 1,000 religious liberty prayer bulletins since that date. Wow. And in addition to that, they've invited you to conferences all over the world? That's right. So I've spoken, I've written two books, and it's been a ministry that just grew and grew. So um, that's where I started. A couple of years after that, I was made the um, the principal researcher and writer for the World Evangelical wow. Alliance. So. That was a full salaried position. I did that for quite a few years. And you got that position because you had a degree in music. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, you know, not everyone appreciated that. There were a few people who thought, what's this woman with a music degree? She's divorced and she's got four kids and she comes from Australia. <laughs> I won't repeat Paul Keating's definition of Australia, but, you know, far, far away. Uh, where what good can come out of Australia, you know. But isn't this a perfect example of God using the least likely? That's been one of my favorite passages Mm -hmm. in 1 Corinthians, that God takes the weak to shame the strong and the fools to shame the wise. And I've hung on to that, actually, Mm -hmm. because there's been quite a bit of challenge and pushback by people who have... They've done all the hard work, you know. Yeah, they've getting got, the degrees. They've and got PhDs in international relations and masters in theology, and they're thinking, "What's the story with this woman who's now the principal researcher and writer for the World Evangelical Alliance?" You know, wow, uh, has our mailing list at her fingertips. You know, what's the story? So there was a bit of, but you know, the most humbling thing was some of the people that I have come to have the most phenomenal respect for. Hugely intellectual people themselves um, respected my work, like they mm-hmm. read it and, yeah. and respected it. Well, and the they, proof is in the pudding. Yeah, and they they expected God to provide, mm. and they knew that God gifted and calls, so they didn't mm. need the degrees. They saw the gifting, they saw the calling, and they were happy. So yeah, I did that right up until 
I think it was April of 2008, mm-hmm. and then I resigned from World Evangelical Alliance so I could continue working mm-hmm. independently, and that gave me some freedom to write my books mm-hmm. and just to be a little bit more independent in my work. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but in our remaining moments, could you kind of give a message to Christians listening today, what you want them to know about persecuted Christians in the world? What I want you to know is that it's very, very difficult to be a Christian who is following Jesus and then find your whole life spins out of control. Your mm-hmm. children are being uh, killed, maybe. Uh, in, in Nigeria, you might be driven from your homes. Mm-hmm. In Pakistan, you might be incarcerated. There are millions of Christians in the world who ask those questions that all suffering Christians ask, whether it's because of sickness or divorce or persecution, they say, where is God and does he still love me? And they need our prayer support. They absolutely need our prayer support because a fierce spiritual battle is underway for these people. Now, my main ministry still to this day is the prayer ministry, Mm -hmm. so the Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin. Mm -hmm. And I believe really strongly that Christians need to pray for the persecuted church and that that God answers these prayers and he lifts them up and they are enduring in ways I think that is remarkable and is in answer to the prayers of many. I also believe that God is doing something amazing in the world today through prayer for the persecuted church in that he's knitting us together. Mm. I often say he's knitting the church together with cords of love forged in the flames of persecution. So as we come to see our suffering brothers and sisters, our persecuted brothers and sisters, because we have the Spirit, the Spirit yearns for them and we love them. But I think God is actually knitting us all together. You find Australians praying for Christians in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan. The Sudanese Mm. are praying for the Chinese. The Chinese are praying for the Pakistanis. And, you know, I just look at this and I think, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when Mm. he gets down and he prays, Oh, Lord, make them one. May they be one as you and I are one so that the world might believe that you sent me. Mm. So my biggest call is to be involved. And as I said, uh, my main ministry is through the Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin which you can sign up for Mm -hmm. on my uh, website and on my blog. Mm -hmm. And I long to see individuals doing this, small groups and churches in their weekly intercessory prayers. Mm-hmm. So that is the whole drive behind my ministry. It's my reason for for getting up every morning. <laughs> Elizabeth Kendall, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Eric. Our guest today has been international religious liberty advocate Elizabeth Kendall sharing her story. And for more information, if you'd like to sign up for that prayer bulletin that she just mentioned, her website is elizabethkendall.com. That's elizabethkendall.com. You've been listening to Real Faith. And if you have any questions or comments, you can send us a message through our website, realfaith.org.au. That's realfaith.org.au. This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.